0: you Good evening everybody welcome back to the Mythgard Academy this is session number 18 on Alice's adventures I think we've got probably uh, probably three more I think probably after today we're getting close uh, we're getting we're in the uh, the home stretch of through the looking glass here uh, most of the big poems are behind us you know so uh, uh, we're uh, as I say in the home stretch um, Today we're going to talk about the lion and the the unicorn section, which is, uh, I've always, I've never felt that I have satisfactorily understood the lion and the unicorn, uh, as a song, like as a thing. I just, I I don't, there's, I feel like there's surely a reference I'm not getting, but I don't know what it is exactly. Um, so anyhow, we're, we'll, we'll see. Maybe you guys can help me to understand that. Um. But before we get into that, um, I wanted to just remind folks i have men- we have mentioned this before I know we talked about this during the uh, during our during our webathon at the end of our fundraising campaign um, but we have some exciting new Signum academy clubs coming up so for those of you who uh, have uh, kids, pretty much middle school and high school age kids is what uh, clubs are for. Um, we have some new stuff coming in January. So we have, we're continuing our book club. They're going to be doing, uh, the book, The Castle of Tangled Magic by Sophie Anderson. Uh, this is, uh, Elise Trudel Cedeno's book club that's been running now for a year and a half. They've been, uh, having an awesome, awesome time. Uh, we have our Old English club, uh, which my son has been in and we're, uh, he's been really, really enjoying learning Old English. Um, they've made really remarkable progress, uh, in their, Uh, Studies of Old English uh, in Translation Club over the last uh, year or so. We're also going to be beginning a new uh, writing club in January, this is one of the things that we're starting back up. We had a, uh, a writing club, and most of our students graduated, so we're starting up a new writing club here in January. Um, and uh, that's going to be a lot of fun, uh, taught by Sparrow Alden, the wonderful Sparrow Alden. And we have two brand-new clubs that we've never had before uh, that I'm really excited about. These are things that students we've had students asking for, and so we are uh, we are getting these together and organized for January. One is... <laughs> Japanese Conversation Club. We've had a lot of requests for this, uh, so very excited to get uh, a Japanese language club together for uh, students who want to learn to speak and understand Japanese, and our Elvish Translation Club for people who want to learn Tolkien's invented languages. So these are for, uh, as I say, like middle school and high school age students. What you have to do in order to all you have to do really to sign up um, is go to so go to Signum University go to the Signum University homepage non-degree program Signum Academy and then just scroll down to the register button here and this will bring you to the registration form it's a very simple online form um, you will give information about the student uh, which club they're interested in and some information about your schedule so that we can make sure to uh, fit to create a section that will uh, be able to accommodate your needs and schedules. So um, I hope that uh, I hope that uh, you guys can help to sort of spread the word about this. If you know um, if you know students who would be interested in joining our clubs again, these are we're planning to start these up in January. So have folks fill out the registration form. um, And then once we get things settled in, there's no payment attached to the registration form right away. Um, you just uh, register and then we figure out we organize the sections and everything, and then once we 're all set um, uh, there is a monthly registration there 's a, a monthly subscription fee uh, for clubs uh, of ninety dollars a month um, There are some other things there's um, uh, you know we have a, a l- group discounts for larger families uh, and that kind of thing as well as some uh, uh, as well as like a military discount and of course it 's always possible. For us to create custom sections of these clubs, if there's a like a, a local group of people, say, you know, if you have a, a group of friends who all want to you know study Japanese together, we could create a, a separate section um, at a special rate. So we can definitely kind of talk about all that stuff. Uh, but the first step to fill out the registration form. So all right, that is uh, one of the big exciting things that is happening here at Signum. Let us get back into through the looking glass here. So living backwards, um, we have seen how one of the things that I have been fascinated in, honestly, I've never really processed this before. I've never really noticed it before, um, how the conversation with the white queen about how her memory works in both ways about how that falls into the midst of these sequences, which begins with Tweedledum and Tweedledee, and then goes through Humpty Dumpty after the White Queen, and then through here into the uh, Lion and the Unicorn incident as well, uh, in which we see Alice's own memory working backwards. That thing which sounded absurd, incomprehensible, even to Alice herself, when the White Queen was trying to explain how it is that her memory can work in both directions. Um, even though we saw it sort of illustrated how she was living backwards in some ways, like when she pricked her finger, taking her shawl off, um, and you know put the bandage on first, and screamed in pain second, uh, and then pricked it third, right? Um, well, again, all of this seemed very alien and very strange to Alice, and yet, We have had this sort of anchor in the text, three anchors, really, and that is Alice's memory of the nursery rhymes. When she knows the story in advance, she remembers ahead. Um, she, she, She knows already because her memory works the other way around. She's remembering the future when she is remembering the Tweedledum and Tweedledee verse. And things happen just as she expects. She is remembering ahead when she's encountering Humpty Dumpty and waiting for him to fall off the wall and knows exactly uh, what would happen should he fall off the wall in what he deems to be the highly unlikely, indeed nearly impossible event of his falling off the wall. Um, Even to the point where he accuses Alice of listening at keyholes. Right. Because how could she possibly know um, that the, what the king had said to him in private about sending all of his horses and all of his men? Right. So we were ending last time when the queen, the, sorry, when Alice goes on to meet the white king uh, and the red king, you'll remember, is the one who's asleep. So we've now had both the white queen and king and the red queen and king. Uh, the red queen was the one that she met with the flowers, uh, the one who gave her her initial instructions. Um, The red King was the one who was sleeping. um, And Alice was accused by Tweedledum and Tweedledee of just being a a kind of thing, you know, a figment within the dream of the red King um, that she clearly was not real. Um, And then of course we met the white queen in the scene that I was talking about, about living backwards and, 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 and her memory working both ways. Uh, and then we have now, finally, the White King, whom we met last time, or were in the midst of meeting last time, and his two Anglo-Saxon messengers um, with their adopting Anglo-Saxon attitudes. Um, now, um, we were just at the point where, right before she remembers and recites the lion and the unicorn song. And the way that that is treated in this section is I think rather different, um, from the way that it was treated with Tweedledum and Tweedledee and with Humpty Dumpty, um, remember that she, she couldn't help herself thinking about the Tweedledum and Tweedledee verse. And the text was a little bit ambiguous as to whether or not she actually recited it aloud, or did she just think about it, um, But you'll recall that Tweedledum and Tweedledee said, I know what you're thinking about, but it isn't so. Um, And they themselves seemed quite un... Well, okay, I was going to say they seemed quite unconscious of sort of living out, you know, the verse that she was reciting. Uh, And yet I'm not sure they were quite unknowing of it. Um, Well... Yeah that's actually an interesting question the more i th- the more i'm thinking about it uh because i think perhaps there is evidence in particular i'm thinking about when they prepare to have a battle um which of course they're you know following their script uh But they're very self-conscious about preparing to have a battle, not only in the sense that they're both tremendously cowardly, uh, though um, wanting to be complimented for their bravery in facing the battle, um, despite the ridiculousness of their preparations. Um, So it's possible that it's merely that kind of self-consciousness, and they're not self-conscious about the fact that they're supposed to have a battle. In any case, it's perfectly clear that Humpty Dumpty is quite... um, does not have any idea about the verse. Again, he's not only surprised, but indeed offended when Alice turns out to know exactly what, um, the, uh, the King has said to him about his horses and men, but there was that one strange turn. That we saw at the end of the Humpty Dumpty incident, which was also significantly, I think, the beginning of this chapter. So at the beginning of chapter seven, which is what we're going to be discussing tonight, um, we had the king's, you know, well, all of the king's horses and most of the king's men showing up. Right. And there were great throngs of them. And Alice was almost trampled by them. She had to hide behind a tree to prevent being trampled. Um, But more importantly, they kept tripping all over themselves. They couldn't handle their feet at all. And I was suggesting that this was in fact a pun, a poetic pun, because you'll remember that when Alice recalled the Humpty Dumpty poem, she recalled it inaccurately. She didn't do the last, she couldn't remember the last line of the poetry properly. And so the final line that she had had too many feet in it and came to an awkward and stumbling and arrhythmic conclusion. And of course, that awkward stumbling and arrhythmic conclusion of too many feet all tangled together is precisely what we then see when most of the king's men uh, show up in order to attempt to to begin their vain attempt to put Humpty Dumpty Back together again. Um, The reason I point this out is of particular interest, is that in that place we begin to get a glimpse of, well, cause and effect. And cause and effect has been something that we have been invited to think to think about on numerous occasions in this book so far. but when I say cause and effect in relate in relation to these sequences, in particular, what I mean is that it was unclear the way in which her recitation of the poems was connected with cause and effect that is, did she merely by knowing um, uh, by knowing the nursery rhymes did that merely give her? knowledge, you know, insight into what was going to happen? Or was there any sense in which she was causing the thing? There was a a vague hint that the latter might possibly be the case when she sort of wished for the black crow at the end of the Tweedledum and Tweedledee incident, um, and it came immediately after that. Now, that could merely have been an anticipation that she knew that they had gotten to that line in the poem and was quite eager for it to come so that her rather awkward encounter with Tweedledum and Tweedledee uh, could come to a merciful end. Um, But with the, the fact that her, the awkwardness of her recitation of the Humpty Dumpty poem, the fact that she seems to have made a mistake, um, you know, failed to accurately recall the final line of the verse, um, seems to have had a causal impact. Um, I'm not sure it isn't Alice's fault that all the king's horses and all the king's men were all tumbled down in a heap, right? Um. And yes, Mrs. Manrique, that is indeed one of the things that then we are invited to wonder about. Um. Mrs. Manrique says, it's all a dream, so she is unconsciously causing it all. Well... If that's the case, yes, sort of though the cause and effect relationships in dreams are not especially clear um necessarily right um but um but yes, it is one of the things that we are invited to wonder um you'll remember there was that passage that we saw where she was um this was in back in chapter six in wool and Water when We are when the narrator himself suggests that it is a dream sequence that Alice is in the middle of, though that has not been acknowledged by either Alice or the narrator apart from that passage, Um, even though the idea of this being a dream of her being in a dream was raised by Tweedledum and Tweedledee about the Red King. Like, yeah. that she's in she's in a dream, all right. They say, but it's not her dream; she's just a figment in the dream. Um, but uh, exactly, Gerald says the Red King is dreaming that Alice is dreaming that the Red King is dreaming. Exactly, exactly. That is precisely the situation that is uh, uh, that. So, so even that is not necessarily um, uh, doesn't sort of explain the cause and effect uh, uh, in a sense. But anyway, okay. So so I'm led to wonder, therefore, the foot thing, right, the feet joke uh, there about her Humpty Dumpty verse. Um, Potentially, like it opens the door to the possibility that Alice's own recitation of the poetry actually is a cause in some sense of what is happening. Now, that by itself, if we think about that as a cause... She's not making it up, right? She's not inventing stories. Um, She, those are, they're very traditional poems. And indeed, she's responding to what she is seeing. It's not like she first wanders around and idly recites the Tweedledum and Tweedledee poem. And then, oh, look, there's Tweedledum and Tweedledee themselves. Like as if her own recitation of the poem or her own recollection of the poem has suggested, you know, has brought them into existence. That's perfectly unclear. Every time she has recited one of these verses, it's been in response to what she's seen. First she sees Tweedledum and Tweedledee, and then she uh, and then she recalls the verse. But of course, that sequence doesn't necessarily prove what is causing what, right? Because of course, remember how things work in Looking Glass Land. First you receive the punishment. Then you have the trial, and finally you do the crime. Or maybe you don't do the crime, but if you don't, that's even better, right? Um, that is, that events work differently, and therefore cause and effect itself functions backwards, at least some of the time, uh, does open up the possibility that the nursery rhyme, that Alice, you know, the sequence of Alice learning the nursery rhyme, and then Alice seeing Tweedledum and Tweedledee and Alice reciting the nursery rhyme and then the events happening. Um, You know, we don't just have to think about those things all kind of moving forward in one one line. Um, But uh, anyhow, um, when we get to the lion and the unicorn chapter, all of this stuff kind of comes into a different focus again. So you'll remember, uh, this is the slide we ended on last time uh, talking about the Anglo-Saxon attitudes. Um, and we have, um, uh, the name is, uh, of the first messenger who has just, who is just arriving and Alice starts doing this thing, right? I love my love with an H. Alice couldn't help, beginning, because he is happy. I hate him with an H because he is hideous. I feed him with... with... with ham sandwiches and hay. His name is Haya, and he lives... He lives on the hill, the king remarked simply, without the least idea that he was joining in the game, while Alice was still hesitating for the name of a town beginning with H. She's playing a word game, right? Um... You know, this is, uh, you can see how this would be kind of a game that children would play, um, you know, to think of, uh, you know, so you, you provide an H where it's like a, uh, well, it's not quite like Mad Libs, but a little bit, right? You know, I love my love with a blank. You choose a letter, right? Or maybe somebody else assigns you a letter or something and you've got to do the thing. I'm not sure exactly how the rules of this game would work, you know. In the field, as it were, right? I love my love with an H. So H is now the theme. Um, and uh, and the first thing is, you know, so I love my love with an H because he is blank. You've got to think of an H word, right, to um, uh, to finish that sentence. I hate him with an H, right? You repeat the letter because he is blank, right? You've got to think of an H word. I feed him with blank and blank, both of which have to begin with the same letter. His name is blank that starts with that letter, and he lives... In blank, you're supposed to think of a town that begins with that letter, right? Um, so this is a you know a kind of puzzle word game. It's uh, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah JJ says it reminds me of a, a playground jump rope song or something. Yeah, yeah, it reminds me. Um, Druid's Fire saying, I spy with my little eyes, something that begins with H. Yeah, it reminds me very much of the kind of game that one might play with children on a long drive in the car, not presumably the context in which Alice practiced this game. Um, but um, anyway, it's uh, whatever the context exactly were, you can see the sort of uh, silliness of this game, right? That um, this would be fun to do because it's fun to, you know, it's, like it, it's a fun puzzle for you to try to fill in the appropriate words, and it will be funny because the outcome is likely to be comical as like I fed him with ham sandwiches and hay is funny. Like that's if I were, you know, one of Alice's playmates when she came up with that, I would laugh. Right. That's really funny. Um. Uh, so this is not the same thing, therefore, as her recitation of uh, nurse, nursery rhymes. There are some similarities in that she is just as nursery rhymes are like extremely familiar, um, you know, little rhymes and verses that she would have. She could have, you know, read and had read to her in any number of nursery rhyme collections uh, from the time they would have been, you know, again, child's entertainment. Right. To read books of nursery rhymes. Um, so this is child's entertainment and in a, a fairly sort of predictable form. Right um but watch what happens watch what happens here when she does this um do you remember what happens immediately after this the um uh the king first of all we should note the king is not tracking at all right he does not understand this convention at all. Again, and notice the language, Alice couldn't help beginning. I love my love with an H. Alice couldn't help beginning. Just as she couldn't help reciting the other two verses, the associations, the memory of those nursery rhymes, when she's confronted by Humpty Dumpty sitting on a wall, she can't help but recite the Humpty Dumpty verse to herself. When she's staring there at Tweedledum and Tweedledee um, as if they were a waxworks, in which case they should pay, according to she should pay, according to Tweedlelem and Tweedledee. Um, she can't help but recite the Tweedlelem and Tweedledee verse. Here she also can't help beginning. For some reason, his name oh yes. well, you can see how the king kind of begins it. He only does them when he's happy. His name is Hea. I think it's his alliteration of the name Hea and the adjective "happy applied to him there in that previous paragraph that triggers Alice and she, you know, noticing the alliteration and noticing how it would fit into the sort of established pattern of the word game that Alice is playing here. uh, She can't help herself, but pick up the game and continue it. Um, I love my love with an H because he is happy. The King just said that. Um, So she fits the happy and the Haya into the rhyme And she fills in the rest. Hideous ham sandwiches and hay. Um, And, of course, the king finishes it with he lives on the hill. Though the king has no idea that he's joining in the game. Um, It's just a coincidence, right? Which means... um, uh, Which means... The game... Works. (laughs) Works. <laughs> it's almost inescapable, right? That Heia is going to end up living, actually living in a place that starts with the letter H, whatever, whatever that is, right? Um, and so, you know, the king supplies not what is the completion of the word association game, or the alliteration game that Alice is playing, but what is for him simple fact? He lives on the hill. Naturally, that's where he lives. Where else would he live? He must live in a place that starts with the letter H. But why? Well, because Alice started the game. Here we see, it seems to me, a more clear cause and effect relationship between Alice's recitation and the events around her than anywhere else in the story so far. Um, Would Haya have lived on the hill if not for the fact that Alice had begun the, uh, the H alliteration game surrounding him, playing on only just like the coincidence of the two things, that his name starts with H and that he's happy, according to the king. Right? So that one coincidence which prompts Alice to do this leads to all of this Other stuff, right? Including, of course, and that's now that could be just a kind of funny coincidence that he lives on the hill, but it's clearly not. Um, hang on, let me come back to that for a second. When the when he arrives, the king says, You alarm me, said the king. He's performing uh, Anglo Saxon attitudes. You alarm me, said the king. I feel faint. Give me a ham sandwich on which the messenger to alice's great amusement opened a bag that hung round his neck and handed a sandwich to the king who devoured it greedily another sandwich said the king there's nothing but hay left now the messenger said peeping into the bag hay then the king said in a faint wh- murmured in a faint whisper alice was glad to see that it revived him a good deal there's nothing like eating hay when you're faint he remarked to her as he munched away I should think throwing cold water over you would be better, Alice suggested, or some volatile, which I think is pronounced that way. I'm not sure. I've only ever heard it pronounced in the wild once, and that's how it was pronounced. So anyway, I didn't say there was nothing better, the king replied. I said there was nothing like it, which Alice did not venture to deny. Now we'll come back to that last point in a second. Um, So... The messenger, Haya, has a bag around his neck, which in fact contains a ham sandwich and hay. The two H food words, or vaguely food words. Well, hay is food, just not necessarily for humans. Um, the two H hay words, or no H food words, that Alice thought up. With apparent spontaneity. Remember how the narr- you know, the 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 book emphasizes that she is being spontaneous in what she's coming up with, with her repetitions. I fed him with, with, with ham sandwiches and hay, right? And then her pause after lives as she's trying to think of another thing. Like it's it is made explicitly clear that she is being wholly spontaneous in her making up of the foods that the messenger is to be fed with now of course in the end the messenger does not f- is not fed with these things um, or rather he is supplied with them but he's not fed with them he instead feeds them to the king right um, so that in some way uh, Alice's apparently, spontaneous and quite whimsical proclamation of the messenger being fed the messenger whom she's never met or even seen up close before um, that he eats ham sandwiches and hay um, appears to lead to or cause the messenger to in fact have a ham sandwich and hay available for eating there in his bag um so, wearing the bag around his neck seems odd, too. Uh, potentially. Potentially. Yeah, it's a little bit Mighty Felix, like a horse's nose bag. Um, uh, yes, that's true. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, anyway. yeah, It's around his neck. It's not like on his face or something, right? Um, I mean, it sounds like it's just like a... Well, like a messenger bag, um, right? That's kind of draped around his neck instead of, you know, hanging down at his side. Um, But um, anyhow... Again, all of these things would be... would just be kind of comical. I mean, when she says ham sandwiches and hay... That's kind of funny on its own, um, as the, the foodstuffs that she suggests um, her love is fed on. Um, but uh, then when they actually show up, it would be even funnier. But again, I keep going back to the White Queen, who is going to make an appearance briefly um, from a distance in this chapter. The White Queen and her proclamations about how things work in Looking Glass Land about how she remembers backwards and how she is, in fact, living backwards. Um, If you do them backwards, they make a kind of sense. That is, if you first start off with the soldiers falling all over themselves, the soldiers arriving and falling all over themselves and thus failing to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And then Humpty Dumpty falling off the wall and then Humpty Dumpty sitting on the wall. And then you uh, make a poem about it, right? Um, and perhaps if you're very clever, indeed, you make a, a, a poetic joke about the soldiers fa- falling all over themselves. And so you add too many feet and make the last line stumble and uh, and fall all over the place uh, as a way of uh, imitating, right, the soldiers. That would make sense. That would work. Um, or things can go backwards, as they do in the sequence that they have, which seems, you know, which it seems to invest... Alice's articulation of the nursery rhyme with the weight of prophecy not even just of prophecy because even prophecy merely suggests knowledge of the future not cause and effect control over the future um here it it's hard to see how you know within the frame of this story this guy could have a ham sandwich and hay, and hay in his bag um if not, uh, you know, if it weren't in response to, I mean, there was no previous association between ham sandwiches and hay until Alice did her little word game thing. Right. But they were clearly already there, right. The messenger that she's seeing approach from a distance, um, the conversation concerning whom is what has prompted her, uh, to play the word game, um, is, uh, yeah, you know, I mean it's 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 obviously done well after hay and ham sandwiches have been put in that bag, um, but um, anyhow. So the this seems to me to invite the question even more forcibly, or rather to draw our attention to the fact that things don't just work in one direction within this story. Mm-hmm. Um, now. In the midst of this, we have the conversation between the, the White King and Alice is, for my money, the best of all of the times in which Alice's words have been uh, sort of taken literally and out of context, in which the, the sort of social conventions of her speech have been disregarded to comical result, um, which happened quite a bit in Alice in Wonderland and has happened quite a bit already in Through the Looking Glass, um, including the rather spiteful and competitive uh, examples with Humpty Dumpty. Um, The White King and Alice, these are are my favorite examples of this. Um, In fact, this is probably my very favorite one, the one that's here on this slide, when the king says, there's nothing like eating hay when you're faint. Um, Which is an odd thing to say. And Alice says, I should think throwing cold water over you would be better. Or some volatile—that that is, um, smelling salts, right? Um, uh, Something to revive you when you're feeling faint. Those two things, throwing cold water over you or smelling salts, um, both of those things would perk you right up if you're feeling faint. Right. Um, Eating hay, not the normal prescription for that. Um, And the king's response, I didn't say there was nothing better. I said there was nothing like it, which Alice did not venture to deny. Love that sentence. Um, Yeah. So here, of course, we see the king saying something and insisting on the literal meaning of the thing that he said. Right. She believes him to mean something different from what he said. Whereas, watch what happens. This is right in the middle. She's just done her I love my love with an H thing. Right. Um, the other messenger is called Hatta. I must have two, you know, to come and go. One to come and one to go. I beg your pardon, said Alice. It isn't respectable to beg, said the king. I only meant that I didn't understand, said Alice. Why one to come and one to go? Don't I tell you, the king repeated impatiently, I must have two to fetch and carry, one to fetch and one to carry. At this moment the messenger arrived. He was far too much out of breath to say a word and could only wave his hands about and make the most fearful faces at the poor king. And this, of course, is what prompts him to uh, start feeling faint uh, and asking for refreshment. Um, yeah, okay. What is happening here? Um, I must have two, he insists twice. I must have two. Why? To come and go, one to come and one to go he must have two to fetch and carry one to fetch and one to carry do you see the play here notice the thing that is that our attention is being drawn to now again this is silly right um, but again wherein lies the silliness if we don't if we don't ask those questions, right, if we don't try to figure out essentially what the joke is, then we miss the thing that that Lewis Carroll's inviting us to ask about, right? Um, what's he inviting us to laugh at? It's about those phrases, to come and go, to fetch and carry. There are lots of, um, there are lots of word pairings that we use all the time like this, which we use without thinking and which lose their meaning the way that we use them. For instance, um if you say that something is spick and span, um, can you identify which bits are spick and which bits are span? Um, there is a difference, of course, between flotsam and jetsam and between wear and tear. And yet those two phrases are merely th- sort of just thrown out mindlessly. Like we, you're not generally invited to imagine what is the difference. Like, you know, what is that flotsam or is that jetsam, right? Um, any more than when you say, you know, this is suffering from wear and tear, are you really insisting on a distinction, right? Between is it, you know, is it, uh, is it 70% wear and 30% tear uh, or or what, right? Um, to come and go. Why do you need a messenger? I need two messengers to come and go. But then he takes that. Which, sure, yeah. What do messengers do? Messengers come and go. Yeah, makes all kinds of sense. What else do messengers or footmen do? Well, they fetch and carry. Sure, they fetch and carry. And those are two phrases kind of like this that get used to come and go. Like to, that's like a single. Kind of category of action that just gets category, you know, characterized in that way to come and go, to fetch and carry, right? But the thing you never do is actually scrutinize and separate the two um, instead of just using them as a clumsy unit, right? But the White King insists that we do this by saying he he must have two messengers. He cannot do without two messengers. Why? Well, Because he needs messengers to come and go, obviously. That's what messengers are for. And, but like, if he doesn't have two, how can they possibly come and go? Because there are two actions there. He needs one to come and one to go. If he doesn't have one to come and one to go, then he can't have messengers to come and go, can he? Can't expect one messenger to both come and go. And of course, when you realize that, right, as soon as you, as soon as it prompts you to stop and think that way, you realize actually, coming and going is not one thing; it's two opposite things. Um, Of course, one person can't both come and go, because (laughs) those two things are opposite from each other, and you can't do them. Indeed, remember, it's just like what Alice said to the Red Queen. Remember about how a hill can't be a valley; it's not possible right? Well, the king seems to have the same objection to one single messenger coming and going at the same time. Doesn't make sense. That would be nonsense. He needs one to come and one to go. But of course that's nonsense too. Because if one messenger's permanent job is coming and the other messenger's permanent job is going, neither one of them will do anything more than once, right? Um, uh, So it's And so this is where I what I see, you know, when I talk about what we're being invited to to laugh at, sort of the nature of these turns of phrase um, of the of uh, of how we use language in this way. And the, the king does it again with fetch and carry. And when he applies it to fetch and carry, distinguishing those two, he needs two messengers. Because the messengers need to fetch and carry. And so obviously you need two, one to fetch and one to carry. What's the difference between fetching and carrying exactly? I'm not even really sure. I mean, when you fetch something, you're carrying something, right? Um, or is fetching... Is fetching the act of going to retrieve something and carrying what you do when you... Is it like coming and going in that way? Right. Yeah. JJ's wondering the same thing. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Um, Maybe. Maybe that's the technical meaning. I mean, normally we use the word fetch to describe that whole process, right, of going to get something and bring it back. Um, But perhaps it's not. Perhaps fetching and carrying is exactly... Like coming and going, in this way, um, one to fetch and one to carry. But of course, here we see uh, the the problem becomes even more immediate. Right, as if one of them is fetching, if only, if one of them is 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 if 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 the job of fetching is the job of only one of them, it is perfectly impossible for the other one to carry. Right. Um. Yeah. So the king's insistence on his pair of messengers really draws attention to what a silly what sort of silly turns of phrases those are Um, the way in which we we use these pairs mindlessly without thinking about them. Um, And when you break them down in the way that he is doing, um, they don't actually make any sense. Um. Notice how this fits in with the pattern Of what he's doing with Alice And his her speech and his speech I beg your pardon, said Alice It isn't respectable to beg, said the king I only meant that I didn't understand Why one to come and one to go? He takes her begging At face value Right, as he insists on his own words being taken. He needs his messengers to come and go and to fetch and carry. And so, obviously, he needs two of them. Um, and, um, the, um, and then we see, of course, the same thing with uh, his reflection on eating hay when you're faint. Uh, that he says something and insists that it be taken quite literally. That is, to examine the meaning of words. Again, this is something that he's been doing throughout the books. But notice how it fits into the patterns of the things that he has invited us to be interested in. In through the looking glass. Names and things. Remember names and things? Um, remember how names and things were connected with cause and effect? how the fawn reacted as soon as it remembered that it was a fawn and that Alice was a human child um remember the illogic of the 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 names of the looking glass insects you know or you know, the impossibility of them um and remember the business about cause and effect in that sense of living backwards and remembering backwards. Um, The words you use, the names you apply to things. Think about what just happened with the word game. She was told his name and she then did the alliteration you know, what sounds like a playground game, right? A nursery game. And it all turned out to be literally true. It seemed to me like having named the thing, including the ham sandwiches and hay. The thing was the thing came to be this direct link between name and thing. Just as we were seeing with the nursery rhymes as well. Right. The direct connection between name and things, not just in the general content of the poems, with Tweedleum and Tweedle Dee and Humpty Dumpty, but with the manner of expression in the poetry, even in the Humpty Dumpty song, there is a close and causal link between name and thing. When Alice gives a name to a thing, it is in looking glass land. Or is it because the thing is? And that causes her to put that name to it, even though it doesn't seem to us to be working in that order because we as readers are only living in one direction. Or are we? Well, golly, what have we been doing here for the last, you know, half hour, if not going backwards and thinking back to now reconsidering seeing Humpty Dumpty and Tweedledum and Tweedledee in a different light? from the vantage point where we are now and seeing that perhaps there are ways in which we've been living backwards all along and that you and I as readers are only just catching up with that. You see what I mean? Um, I think this is an immensely ornate and complicated kind of thing um, that he's, uh, that he's doing here. Um, Yeah. Um, Okay, so so once again, this old game of ignoring the social conventions and instead taking Alice's words on their face value, like, I beg your pardon, saying that she is begging and, you know, advising her that that isn't respectable. Um, now begins to look differently in the context of all of this contemplation of names and things uh, remember back through jabberwocky as well the um the way in which that poem was playing with the relationship between names and things remember in humpty dumpty's poem the way in which um you know the poem which was saying uh, that you know the, the the jabberwocky poem in which I. Uh, a very definite thing was said by means of very indefinite words um and then uh you have humpty dumpty's poem in which very indefinite things are said through vi- through very definite and indeed heated expressions um yeah yeah um For thoughtless, I agree that remembering and reconsidering previous events is how it normally works. It's when we remember ahead that things get weird. But that's the point, is that when we do go back and reconsider previous events in this book, we begin to understand how and why. So, like, for instance, let's go back to the king's messenger who's being punished for the crime he's not yet committed, which is Hatta. by the way. We are now meeting Um, That he's just recently been released from prison, which means his trial, no doubt, will be coming up soon. Um, So uh, anyhow, um, had we merely heard about those, like if we hadn't been told about that whole sequence of events in order as the White Queen gives it to us, it wouldn't have made any sense. That like the king's messenger is in prison. What did he do? Oh, he hasn't done anything yet. When did he get condemned? Oh, he's not had a trial. It would seem, as it seemed to Alice, merely monstrous, merely unjust. Um But the incident with the pricking of the Queen's finger with the pin, um, you know, with her brooch helps us to see how cause and effect works backwards, how it works differently. Um, we, in our normal f- you know, forward-moving direction, begin to see the pattern of the backward-moving events. But by its nature, we can only see that in retrospect. The same thing happens with Alice's Humpty Dumpty poem and The King's Men falling all over themselves, right? Um, It makes sense. It only makes sense to us in retrospect, but that doesn't, but it, that's, retrospect isn't how it worked. Exactly. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, So, Mrs. Manrique, I would urge you to resist thinking about Alice's dream. And, And here's why. we've had only a few hints that she is dreaming at all. Um, I think it's important to... uh, I think it's important to focus on the cues that the story is providing us. We have been given hints, especially back in the Wool and Water chapter, that she may be in a dream. The business with the Red King suggests that dreaming is happening. And Alice certainly hopes that she's the one who's dreaming and not the king. However, remember, as I was saying, there was no moment, unlike Alice in Wonderland, which does begin with a, like, sort of falling asleep-esque moment, right? Or like a moment in which perhaps she has fallen asleep. Like, is she actually seeing the white rabbit or is this the beginning of a dream, right? Um, That's a a sort of question that... I think compared to the beginning of the looking glass we're invited to ask there's no comparable moment that long first chapter with her t- talking to the kittens and seeming quite wide awake um and then the beginning of the you know alternate reality sequence when she goes through the mirror remember that the context we're given for that what we're in, what we are told about alice and, in, and what is insisted on again and again is not her vivid dreams it's her imagination right let's pretend and it seems to be a less a a a pretending trajectory right let's pretend we can go through the looking glass and what the look I've always wondered what the looking glass world looks like and so what follows from that i don't see any cue within the narrative there to prompt us in any way to associate this with an actual dream, like there's no moment in the beginning of it that we can point to to say like, okay, she has fallen asleep and is now dreaming. Um, instead, we are given that kind of intermediate. Like, there's 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 her waking life, which is presumably like the kitten playing with the ball of worsted, right? Um, and there's uh you know, her looking glass world. And there's that intermediary thing, which is her pretending, right? Her pretending to be a a hungry hyena, you know, her pretending to be kings and queens significantly. Um, So uh, um, that's where this, what what the story prompts us to think about. Um, And here's why Ms. Menryke, I think this is important. I think that this is important because once again, one of the things that it seems to me this story is very interested in is cause and effect and cause and effect is exactly, I think the number one thing that is most, that most distinguishes dream sequences from, um, from pretending, pretending is Alice. Alice is the cause, right? Her, active her her active imagination right is what causes the you know the stories that play out when she's imagining uh to occur when you fall asleep and have a dream there may be you know indirect causes from your subconscious or whatever um but the cause and effect does not work the same in any way that it does when you are pretending when you're just imagining. And so the context that we're given in chapter one, the emphasis on pretending and how central that is to Alice's character, suggests that she is on some level in control of this, and that's how she introduces it. Let's I wonder what things are like in Looking Glass Land. Um anyway, uh we're gonna get there. I mean of course, Ms. Mandrick, as you know full well, You're not wrong. Right. Um, There is going there is a chapter called waking. Right. Um, When apparently she is going to wake up from a dream that she has, in fact, been having. But I think it's important that that's only going to come in at that point. And that point is when we then are going to need to go back and refit everything into what we are told then. Right. And Alice is indeed going to end the book by reflecting on it. Um, So we'll get to that in its due time. Right. But um, but apart from that one hint in Wool and Water, I don't think that we have any reason to end the Red King dreaming sequence. Uh, I don't think we have. That's why I was bringing those up, because I don't think we have uh, very clear reasons Uh, to think in that direction, which, again, I think is important. Okay. Anyway, do you see how all of this kind of comes together? Um, How all of these things work? And then, of course, on top of all of this, you still have the, you know, the the chess game um, conceit uh, that is still sort of running through the whole thing. Um, Let's keep going. The king. One of the first thing the white king does to Alice, as far as that whole taking her words at face value thing is concerned, is when the king asks if she can see the messenger on the road and she says, I see nobody on the road. And he's like, wow, you know, you've got amazing eyes, Um, you know, to I wish I had eyes like that to be able to see nobody. And at this distance, too. Um, And this plays out again when the messenger shows up who did you pass on the road the king went on holding out his hand to the messenger for some more hay nobody said the messenger quite right said the king this young lady saw him too so of course nobody walks slower than you i do my best the messenger said in a sullen tone i'm sure nobody walks much faster than i do oh he can't do that said the king or else he'd have been here first However, now you've got your breath. You may tell us what's happened in the town. Okay. Um, <laughs> I love this passage. Um, uh, the subtitle of my slide here uh, is uh, Utis, uh, which is, that's the Greek word that Odysseus gives as his name to Polyphemus, the uh, Cyclops in the Odyssey, right? When the, uh, Polyphemus asks him his name and he says his name is Utis which means nobody um and so therefore when he later on blinds the the Centauri almost said uh, the Cyclops inside his cave and the other Cyclopes uh come around the outside of the cave and say what happened who hurt you and he says nobody hurt me right Utis hurt me um then um you know they're like oh like whatever he's just probably drunk or something um yeah. Um, yes, it should remind you of the character Canby uh, from uh, the Phantom Toll Booth. Absolutely. Um, yes, yes. Um, now, see, Mighty Felix, I agree. Um, nobody, nobody did get there first, as far as I can tell. She says, right? Um, and yes, this sounds a lot like Who's on First? The uh, um, the classic Abbott and Costello, um, which I used to as a child, I could recite that. I loved that so much. Um, uh, yeah, I somehow was given by a family member. a. uh, I don't know where they got it exactly. Cause it was a dubbed tape, um, a, uh, a recording, not just of that exchange, but of the whole skit that it was a part of. Um, um, uh, of uh, Costello joining the Yankees. But anyway, um, anyhow, uh, the way in which I'm not going to get into a prolonged analysis of who's on first, um, but of course, the way uh, all I will say is Lewis Carroll would have loved that skit, right? And you can see how many of the same. Uh, many of the same plays and contemplations are at work there. The relationship between name and thing, right? Um, And, uh, you know, names being... uh, uh, A a name being mistaken for a separate thing. Um, Anyway. um, So, but back to nobody. Uh, Mighty Felix says nobody did get there first. Well, yes. Nobody... Well, the messenger got there first. See, if the king hadn't said, <clears throat> nobody walks slower than you, right? If the king hadn't said he can't do that or else he'd have been here first. Um, <clears throat> well, he, uh, somebody did get there first. The messenger got there, right? Um Well, I guess, but you're right. Nobody got there before the messenger, did they? Yeah, it's true. Nobody did get there before the first messenger got there. So, uh, maybe the messenger is right. And nobody does walk much faster than he does. But then, that can't be, because then Alice wouldn't have seen nobody, Right? she saw nobody first and then the messenger came into sight after she'd seen nobody yeah he <laughs> just points out um it also doesn't make sense because nobody walks alone uh <laughs> yes agreed agreed um yeah yeah um okay <laughs> You're right. Nobody walks alone. (laughs) I like that. Um, maybe nobody went off trail. Maybe that's the problem. (laughs) Edith, right? I think that that might solve all the problems. Um, if nobody did, uh, if nobody does walk much faster than the messenger, he might have gone off trail. Uh, (laughs) I think that's very possible. (laughs) Uh, excellent. Excellent. Um, But again, again, think of how this fits with the pattern. Um, Like we're back to we're back to names and things again. Is this by taking her word at face value when she says, I saw nobody as being a claim to have seen a thing called nobody um, by taking that. um, And again, notice. Once again, what Lewis and Carol, what Lewis and Carol, what <laughs> between C.S. Lewis and Lewis and Clark, I often get all mixed up with Lewis Carroll's name. I have to admit, um, <clears throat> anyway, um, the um, once again, I invite us to pay attention to what Lewis Carroll is inviting us to laugh at. And here it's the use of the word Nobody. Think about the word nobody. Right? Um, the irony which was exploited by Odysseus way back in the day, right, is that the word nobody is a positive word to describe a negative thing. Right? It is an active... It's a noun. What are nouns? Right? Like they're names that point to things. What is the thing that that name points to? What is the thing that... What is the point of the word nobody? The word nobody stands for nothing. For the absence of anyone. And thus creates all manner of confusion. Therefore, is itself an intrinsically ironic word Right? Um, It's an intrinsically ironic word. If you say nobody... Because, of course, it gets used as the subject of verbs all the time. Nobody knows. Nobody did that. Nobody thinks that. Right? You are ascribing actions to what? To nothing. It is a way to take what you mean to be a negative statement. Right? What Alice really meant was... I do not see anyone on the road. Right? I see there is a negation of things that I that that, that that are to be seen on the road. But how she expresses it, how we traditionally express that, right? The the way our language works is to have a concrete ver a concrete noun, right, which points to the nothingness. And the the irony, right, the 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 sort of paradox of that concept, of that construction, opens up, as Homer perceived so many years ago, um, all of this delightful scope of misunderstanding, which the White King is doing in multiple different senses, right? Um Yeah, yeah. Um so yes Um, I think we need a like chart of some kind Um, I am delighted to be going through through the looking glass with you at this pace I've taught this book many times before I used to teach I've mentioned before I used to teach this book in my uh, my English 101 class um, which is a, a little bit sadistic in some ways but um And the worse because your poor English one-on-one students don't realize, right? You're assigning them a children's book. And so they're like, well, this is easy. (laughs) This is simple. Uh, And then I'm wanting to talk about all these things. And they're like, my my head hurts. Anyway, um, you know, not necessarily what the... uh, you know what the biology majors who are just taking this class is for their required humanities distribution necessarily were looking for um uh yeah yeah um <laughs> anyhow um so the play on nobody brings back, it, it you know there's this question of um you know, the the way that it connects with the names and things, even in a sense with cause and effect, the way that we saw his literalizing of her language in other ways and the literalization of his language, right, and the way that that's tied in with cause and effect um, through her um, word game, right, and all that stuff. All this stuff is tied together um, in this really complicated web. That I feel like I've never really untangled myself, uh, but it's. But I have to say, the pace at which we're able to proceed through this book, chapter by chapter. Needless to say, I didn't spend like, you know, ten class sessions on uh, through the Looking Glass in my English one one class. So um, it's uh, it's it's really fun to think it through a little bit more slowly, uh, as we're doing here now. Um, okay, now we get. To the next rhyme. Um, They're at it again, uh, says the messenger. That's the message. They're at it again. Um, and Alice asks "Who who's at what, right? Um, Why the lion and the unicorn, of course, said the king. Fighting for the crown? Yes, to be sure, said the king. And the best of the joke is that it's my crown all the while. Oh, wait, hang on a second. I almost forgot. Before we go on to this, one more quick thing I wanted to, that we uh, skipped over that I just remembered after we were talking about this. And I wanted to come back to it before we, before we did the Lion and the Unicorn. Um, did you catch the reference? Did you remember back, remembering backwards now, uh, you know, the normal way. Do you remember back to what, what Lewis Carroll is referring to? when the king says there's nothing like eating hay when you're faint and Alice says I should think throwing cold water over you would be better remember the incident earlier in the book that we should be remembering here remember the reference remember when Alice first went into looking glass land when she went, first went through the Looking Glass and was in Looking Glass House and looking around the room and she saw the chess pieces all over the place and she picked up the White Queen, right? And, um, you know, mind the volcano said the White Queen when she got picked up and brought up to, to be with Lily, her baby, right? Um, And then Alice picks up the king, the White King, this king, right? She picks up the white king um, and he's all covered with ashes and she throws the ink over him, right? She, 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 she wants to throw water on him. Um, and that incident is recalled here in her reference to throwing cold water over the white king here. Um, That moment in Looking Glass House, her interaction with the chess pieces, all come relevant here in this little group of chapters. Her meeting with the White Queen, or she interacted with the White Queen, with the White King, and indirectly with the White Knight, you may remember. Um, that's what she wrote when the White King was trying to write in his memorandum book but he couldn't manage his pencil at all because Alice was holding the end of the pencil and forcing his pencil to write something that was not a memorandum of his thoughts. And so, again, we had the the words that he was writing were not connected to the things that were in his head, right? So he was objecting to the disjunction between the words that were on the page and his own thoughts. not a memorandum of your thoughts, the White Queen says. And what was it that Alice wrote? She said, "The white knight is trying to balance on the poker. He does it very ill. Right? I don't remember the exact words, but it was something along that lines. How how uh, the, the the white knight was on was 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 astride the poker and doing it badly. Um, that will come in relevant in the next chapter after this. Um." So that moment as this sort of transition between her regular world and then looking glass house and now the rest of Looking Glass Land. Um, right, yes, Moe Dillon is also remembering the Queen recommending um uh dry biscuits. Uh the 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 Red Queen offering to quench Alice's thirst with dry biscuits. Um, is also a thing we should be remembering when the White King is recovering from his faintness by eating hay. Right, thank you, JJ. The White Knight is sliding down the poker. He balances very badly. Yes, that's, that's, uh, that was the thing that the White King, without knowledge of how it was happening, wrote um, by force of Alice's hand on his pencil uh, in his memorandum book. Um, And, um, and remember also that she was invisible to them at the time. That also seems relevant. Okay. Anyway, I wanted to make sure we remembered that. We noticed that and remembered that before we moved on. Now back to the Lion and the Unicorn. Why, the Lion and the Unicorn, of course, said the king, fighting for the crown? "'Alice knows exactly what they're going to be doing.' "'Yes, to be sure,' said the king. "'And the best of the joke is that it's my crown all the while. "'Let's run and see them.' "'And they trotted off, Alice repeating to herself as she ran "'the words of the old song. "'The lion and the unicorn were fighting for the crown. "'The lion beat the unicorn all round the town. "'Some gave them white bread, some gave them brown. "'Some gave them plum cake and drummed them out of town.' The lion and the unicorn were fighting for the crown. The lion and the unicorn were fighting for the crown. Were fighting for the crown. The lion beat the unicorn all around the town. Some gave them white bread and some gave them brown. Some gave them plum cake and drummed them out of town. Uh, Notice how this... Remember how in the Humpty Dumpty verse, um, the lines were not really set up in a normal metrical pattern, right? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. You've got the two different segments, which have a clear and repeated pattern, but it's not like the entire line is in a regular meter exactly. The individual kind of metrical units are... um, idiosyncratic, or you've got the two different kind of idiosyncratic rhythmic chunks that make up those lines. A similar thing seems to be happening in this verse here. The lion and the unicorn were fighting for the crown. Um, the lion and the unicorn were fighting for the crown. No, actually, it kind of does work. Except... It's not a normal meter. Lion is stressed. And unicorn. The first syllable, both of those words, is stressed. But in between the first syllable of lion and the first syllable of unicorn is three unstressed syllables. Um, But then we get three more unstressed syllables. Unicorn were. Icorn were. Unstressed. Fighting for the crown. Um so you get what is like Anapest, unstressed, unstressed, you know, um uh you know, like the sneeches, right? Um for the star bellied sneeches had bellies with stars, but the plain bellied sneeches had none upon theirs. Pum 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 bum, bum bum. Um one of Dr. Seuss's favorite meters. Sneeches, Grinch, all that kind of thing, right? It's like that, except it's got an extra syllable in it, right? Um, I agree. Round instead of around does sound wrong to me, too. Um, second line The lion beat the unicorn all round the town. All around the town the town would be better to me Tarlonio. totally agree with that um it shifts here yeah I, there are i ams rachel in that second line the lion beat the unicorn same same pattern as the first line but then all ra- all around the town I think Tarlonio we want um we want around instead of round, because if it is if it were to be around, then it would be perfectly iambic in the second half of that line. And we didn't get iams. I mean, unless you count the lion at the beginning, the lie. Um but um but that's a, you frequently get that kind of a an iambic beat at the start of a line that doesn't necessarily fit with the with the meter of the rest of the line. That's a pretty common technique. Um, Okay, so we've got this, you know, super anapestic line, and then we get what begins in super anapest. Instead of super anapest, I'm going to call it mega anapest. Um, Yeah. Oh, I'm sure there is a tune to the song and that we don't know. It is an old traditional song. I don't know, but I don't need to know. Um, I don't need to know to hear how it works um how this, the stresses work some gave them white bread some gave them brown some gave both stressed some gave them white bread two so of these 5 syllables four are stressed right we we get extremely spondaic here um in the third line, some gave them white bread, some gave them brown, some gave them plum cake and drummed them out of town. So we have three units of that very spondaic verse: two stresses two two stresses one down two, two stresses one down one, two stresses one down two and then i ams and drummed them out of town matching what we see in line 2 except not quite tarlonio right but let me stop resisting what's actually there in the text i'll uh, by which i mean let me stop pretending it says all around the town which it does not in fact say because all around the town sets up um uh all around the town sets up the spondies of lines 3 and 4 says traditional rhymes are not written by professionals i disagree i disagree um you want to find you want to find good rhythm in verse listen to what kids uh, chant while jumping rope right then you 'll get good meter right that that's they're going to have much better meter than someone who is than some professional hack who's merely writing poetry right um, uh, kids have a great ear for rhythm um, yeah yeah um. Anyway, okay. The lion beat the unicorn all round the town. Yes, notice if you do it the way that it actually says, if we don't try to make it iambic there at the end. It matches the end of line 3. All round the town. 2 1 um 2 stressed 1 unstressed and then back to stressed. Um all round the town. Some gave them brown, right? It's the same pattern there. So it's not shifting to I The only real iams. I hear what you're saying, Rachel. Rachel wants to say if we stress the and um, in the first line, then that becomes iambic. The lion and the unicorn. But you've got to do a lot of work to make and a stressed syllable. It can be done, but you've got to go way out of your way uh, to signal, to because a conjunction like that, especially the conjunction and, you might stress the conjunction but, because but has a particular emphasis, right? You often land heavily on a but. (laughs) However, you rarely land heavily on an and, unless the poet goes out of his way to force you to do it. And I'm thinking of the best example that I know of off the top of my head is uh, Shakespeare in Hamlet. Um, the stress, which is almost never done properly by any modern actor in tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, is on the ands. Um, the meter in that line insists on... Placing the the you know, because we're in a, in a very clearly iambic pattern prior to that. And the iams hit you squarely on the and, um, emphasizing the continued repetition. It's the ands. It's not the tomorrows that are important. The whole point of the line is tomorrows are not important. What's important in that line are the ands, the continuous progression. Um, and the repetition emphasizes it. So that by the end, even if you didn't, even if you tried to not stress it at the beginning of the line, if you're feeling it, hearing it, paying attention, you, you stress them by the end, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Um, anyway, my point is that's the kind of thing you've got to do in order to stress an and and with no context there, I can't do it. Now, Rachel, I will give you this stressing beat is much more intuitive. And so that suggests a contrast there between line one and two, perhaps, that it it seems to be the same pattern. But notice by replacing the conjunction, by repeating the same phrase, but replacing the conjunction with a verb, you are changing it. You're changing the pattern of that speech, right? The lion and the unicorn were fighting for the crown. The lion beat the unicorn all round the town. Some gave them white bread, some gave them brown, some gave them plum cake and drummed them out of town. Rachel, I'll add this. If we stress four in the first line, then we have IMs at the end. The lion and the unicorn were fighting for the crown. The lion beat the unicorn all round the town. So, yeah, um, um, yeah, um, okay. So then what we have we think about it that way, if we allow that stre- that syllable to be stressed, the four I mean I still think that the and is unstressed but that then just becomes a slight departure at the beginning of the line the lion and the unicorn were fighting for the crown the lion beat the unicorn um, the first line and a half becomes perfect I am's with the one exception which is fine which is fine. The lion and the unicorn were fighting for the crown. The lion beat the unicorn all round the town. So Tarlonio, the syllable that we want to be there, it's important that it not be there. The absence, that's why you were feeling it, right? And I'm feeling it too. I want that word to be around, because if it were around, then the whole first two lines could basically be iambic. The lion and the unicorn were fighting for the crown. The lion beat the unicorn all around the town. It's almost perfect. It's, it's, it's really good. But it's clearly important that it shouldn't be. Um, it's important that it shouldn't be. Um, because it triggers the shift in rhythm for the next line and a half all round the town. Some gave them white bread, some gave them brown, some gave them plum cake and drummed them out of town. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so the end of that second line becomes the, the sort of hinge there. And then we return to the, the iambic rhythm at the end of the last line with the drumming drumming them out of town, which is a figure of speech, by the way, right? If you're drummed out of town, it doesn't necessarily, or at least directly involve drums to be drummed out of town means to be, you know, uh, removed from town, escorted out of town, um, kicked out. Booted. Gerald says the all nursery rhyme site says it around. I bet it's wrong. That's exactly um, where were we? Oh yeah, it was at um uh, SoCalmoot. It was really fun. Um so at SoCal Moot, we were looking at um uh the poem. Uh, mythopoeia. We did a long discussion. We did a little like myth, mini Mythgard Academy um, session, a couple sessions uh, at uh, at SoCal Moot, and we uh, so we, we were we were doing a, a a reading of, uh, Louis, of uh, uh, Lewis's the poem to Lewis, um, Tolkien's poem Mythopoeia. and I was supposed to make slides. I totally just blanked. Completely forgot to make to put Mythopia on slide so that I could have it show. So somebody found a quick copy online. We slapped it up on the screen and we started going through it. But there were mistakes. There were things that were definitely wrong that were not in the original version of the poem that had been like miscopied or something. And so as we were going through, we were identifying the scribal errors. Uh, and. And it was it was actually really interesting because they fit the patterns of a lot of scribal errors that you see uh, in uh, medieval manuscripts so we were deciding this was actually a really fun part of the exercise uh, and uh, one that Tolkien himself would appreciate as it was a kind of thing that he did a lot uh, thinking about you know coming across a particular Old English word in Beowulf for instance and saying you know I think the poet actually used a different word But then, but that word was a, you know, was altered to this other word by the scribe. And so that's why. Anyway, this kind of thing. Um, The way that, in other words, what I'm saying is, it wouldn't surprise me one bit for um, somebody who is collecting nursery rhymes to write this out and say, oh, that can't be right. Um, that line, that whole line is a perfectly iambic line. The rhythm demands a round, right? That basically, the person editing the text feels precisely the same thing that you and I were feeling, Terlonial, right? And saying, this should be a round. And so you just, you just change it. It was probably a mistake, right? But when you look at what's actually there, you see it serves a different purpose. It serves a different pattern. Um, and exactly echoes some gave them brown in the li- in the next line, um, thus creating a rhythmic rhyme as well as a sound rhyme between the end of line two and the end of line three um, anyway so i um uh, I suspect those t- to be incorrect, or it's possible that Lewis Carroll here is playing with it himself just as we saw him playing with the meter for different reasons in Humpty Dumpty, right? Um, With his misremembering of the last line. But I like what he's doing here. This is much better than the one that I felt that I, that I thought that I wanted, right? When I first heard line two. Um, Then speaking of kids on the playground jumping rope, doesn't that segment in the middle sound like that kind of thing, right? All round the town. Some gave them white bread. Some gave them brown. Some gave them plum cake. Right. Um, And drum them out of town is where it becomes more regular, the meter, but it gets out of that, um, you know, that what sounds like a, you know, a hopscotch or a, 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 a jump rope, um, it sounds a lot like peas porridge. In fact, it's exactly the same. Peas porridge hot, peas porridge cold, peas porridge in, in the pot nine days old, right? Hear all the spondee's there? Um, in that verse, the peas porridge verse, um, peas porridge hot. I'm counting unstressed syllables in the whole rhyme there. Peas, porridge, hot. One unstressed syllable. The idge in porridge. Peas, porridge, cold. Same. Peas, porridge, in the pot. We get a little iambic thing at the, a little iambic turn at the end of that line. Um, the and edge again. So up to four total unstressed syllables. Nine days old. None. So four entire, four unstressed syllables in the entire verse, right? Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Gerald, can we be sure that 1776 spelling matches current pronunciation? No, for sure. We can't. Um, uh, also, the reason I suggest um, error in the inclusion of a round in some of the other versions is that, um, somebody I've ever forgotten who it was said that nursery rhymes aren't made by professionals. No, um, nor are they edited by professionals very often. Um, collections of children's rhymes are often very poorly done. Um, indeed like, Collections of verse were often produced by um, you know hack publishers uh, who do a terrible job of sourcing their texts and proofreading their stuff and um, there are lots and lots of errors uh, in those traditions. Um, I'm not saying they're all saying they're all really bad and they're all really slapdash. I'm just saying... There were many very slapdash, poorly edited uh, and poorly sourced collections like that because it was a big market for them. Right. I mean, everybody loved nursery rhymes. Everybody wanted collections of nursery rhymes to read with their kids. You know, these would make these make great gifts for, you know, uh, parents of new children and stuff like that. There's a there's a constant market for this kind of thing. And so you get a lot of publishers who try to get in on that market. Let's crank out. A nursery rhyme collection, and they don't put a lot of... Because, I mean, it's not high literature, right? Who's going to care? Who's going to notice, right, if you screw it up? So who cares? Um, yeah. Oh, man, JJ, you're right. Nobody's collection is very a- accurate. That's a good one. Um, yeah. That is a very accurate collection. Nobody's. Um, yeah. Well played. Um, okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> For thoughtless, it's a wonderful question. At what point does an error inserted into the tradition and carried down through the generations become canon? Yes, that's exactly that's exactly it's um, exactly the question. In some cases, especially when something is uh, essentially being drawn from oral tradition. Um, yeah. And there are variant versions all over the place. So, yeah, there's, uh, it's, um, it's, a it's a messy world, right? It's a messy world. But again, coming back to what is here in this verse and in this version of the verse, I think all round the town is clearly correct and important and intentional, right? Because of the way that it transitions into the rhythm of the next lines. Um, Anyway, back to the context. Let's go back a little bit. Yes, to be sure, said the king. And the best of the joke is that it's my crown all the while. Let's run and see them. And they trotted off, Alice repeating to herself as she ran the words of the old song. We get the song. Does the one that wins... Get the crown, she asked, as well as she could, for the run was putting her quite out of breath. Dear me, no, said the king. What an idea! Would you be good enough, Alice panted out after running a little further, to stop a minute just to get one's breath again? I'm good enough, the king said, only I'm not strong enough. You see, a minute goes by so fearfully quick, you might as well try to stop a bandersnatch. Okay. Um... This, um, this is the joke that Tolkien, Lewis was making about Tolkien, the famous joke, um, when, uh, someone was asking Lewis about, uh, you know, influences on Tolkien and, um, and says, and he said about Tolkien, you might as well try to influence a Bandersnatch, um, uh, this is the passage he was referring to uh when he made that famous reference, which has been recently made uh more famous again by um uh blanking. Diana what's her last name? Because of the G. Why am I blanking on this? Her name her book Bandersnatch, um, on creative writing circles. Ah, I hate it when this happens. I suppose this is the downside to getting old. There are many things that are fun about getting old. Like reading books for the first time again. Um but recall issues. Oh well. Glier, thank you. Good grief. Diana Glyer book, Bandersnatch. Thank you. Mighty Fields. Um Uh Okay. Anyhow. Um uh, Alice repeats the verse to herself as she runs. Um, Alice isn't jumping rope, and she's not playing hopscotch, but she is running. I could imagine running to this. All round the town, some gave them white bread, some gave them brown. Anyway. Okay, so she's running, and then she asks a question. She knows what the lion and the unicorn must be doing when the king mentions that it's the lion and the unicorn that are, quote, at it again, right? Um, well, they must be fighting for the crown, obviously, because she knows the, the, the verse. She knows the song. Um, but then she asks the question, does the one that wins get, get the crown? The king, of course, has already told her that it's his crown that they're fighting for. And so he says, dear me, no. What an idea. No, he's not going to give up his crown to whoever wins the fight between the lion and the unicorn. Um, what an idea. What an idea. Notice what this, the question that this invites or opens up. Well, then, In what sense are they fighting for the crown? She knows the lion and the unicorn are fighting for the crown. Why do they do this? If they don't get the crown, and they don't get to keep the crown, why do they fight for it? Um, What an idea, says the king. Throwing into doubt the entire point of the whole song. The fighting for the crown, the beating all around the town. The white bread and brown. Um, yeah, yes. For thoughtless, you are right. There is, of course, a play potentially what sounds like a play on the idea of fighting for the town, for the crown, not fighting over the crown. You understand but fighting for the crown, like on behalf of the crown. That is, if you fight for your country, you are fighting for the crown, for the crown against the crown's enemies, right? Except the second line makes it clear that the lion and the unicorn are indeed fighting each other. Maybe they're both fighting each other for the crown in some other sense, right? But it's still... Rather hard to follow, right? Um, rather hard to understand. Um, and who who is giving them white bread and brown bread? and who's giving them plum cake? and drumming them out of town? Tune in next time when we return to these questions, and we are now getting to the place where I hope that you can help me with the lion and the unicorn song because I don't fully understand it. But in particular, what I want to be looking at when we come back to this next time is how the verse and what happens are connected to each other. The extent to which we see, do we see a similar pattern of cause and effect of remembering ahead that we've seen in Tweedledum and Tweedledee and in Humpty Dumpty, or is it different here in some ways? Um, Anyway, we will uh, we'll see we'll see what we think uh, when we continue our discussion together. That'll be next week, um, but we are getting close towards the end. So we're gonna um, re- remember the book that we're gonna be getting back to after we finish Alice uh, is the War of the Jewels, right? Volume eleven of the History of Middle Earth. Returning to the History of Middle Earth uh, after after a significant delay. Um which I don't regret for an instant, and I'm glad we stopped to read the Nature of Middle Earth together um when it came out uh, you know, a year ago, September. But um anyway, we'll be we'll be coming back uh to the History of Middle Earth series after that. I expect that to begin probably if I had to guess right now, probably the beginning of February is around when I'm expecting that we'll 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 start the War of the Jewels. We've got a good Well, I said two weeks, probably three weeks left uh, in Through the Looking Glass before we get there. But anyhow, awesome. Thanks very much, everybody. We'll come back to this next time, and you can help me more with The Lion and the Unicorn. We'll figure that out, and then we'll move forward to the White Knight, who may be my single favorite character in the book. It's not necessarily my favorite chapter, but he may be my favorite single character in the entire book. All right. Thanks, folks, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now.